true Christians not only have peace of conscience, but also war within themselves. They are known for their inner warfare as well as their peace. So says J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop. We are in a five-week series on the Psalms, and the Psalms we've looked at so far reveal this inner warfare that J.C. Ryle is talking about. The Psalms show how at times we wrestle within ourselves. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? That's what we heard last week from Psalm 42. The Psalms also show clashes not just within ourselves, but with God Himself. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's what we heard in the first week from Psalm 13. Now, it might be surprising that God has these things recorded in a book that's meant to demonstrate His goodness to us, especially to those who follow Him. But what's more surprising is that these divinely inspired psalms aren't secret journal entries that are tucked away under the pillow. No, they're the hymn book from which the whole community sings from. The psalms are the poems of God's people. They were recited while they worked. They were the prayers shared before meals. They were the chants used during the festivals. And that includes these psalms that expose a heart wrestling with God. We must see the importance of this at the onset. You know, if any person were to crack open the Bible, where they would land is most likely in the psalms. And many times in a place where a person is laying out their hard questions for God. Wrestling with God. And God wants us to have them. You better believe it. Because when you get beneath the surface, these psalms of great turmoil actually reveal how gracious God is to us. He wants His presence. He wants His very Word to accompany us in every season. When our emotions are so strong and we can't even come up with the words, God gives us the words in these psalms. He gives us words in the seasons when we feel far from Him. He gives us words when our negative emotions are directed at Him. When we read in the Bible that God will supply for all of our needs, these emotional needs were included as well. When we're going through it, others may say to us, you shouldn't have such thoughts. You should just believe more. You should try harder. But God's approach is very different than that. He doesn't stand above the pit and call down and say, shape up, do more, get out on your own. Instead, He jumps all the way down into the pit with us, and He meets us where we are. He rescues us from the place that we have fallen so that He can take us to the place He most wants us to be, which is with himself. If the pit is where you are this morning, that is exactly the place God will meet you. In fact, today's psalm 
is really about how God rescues a man from the pit. We said that the Psalms are songs and poems, but today's Psalm is actually a triple feature. You see how good you have it? It's a mini story as well. Taken at face value, Asaph is the author and composer of this psalm. He's the main character in the story. And Asaph was a musician in King David's and Solomon's court who would lead God's people in worship on a weekly basis and during uh, festivals as well. So today we're looking at a story of how God brings a person, even a mature Christian, from a place of doubt to delight. Let's look at this passage now together this morning. In verse 1, Asaph begins with a confession of faith. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, not only those who believe God in their heart, but who obey God in their lives, they experience God's goodness in life. But Asaph wasn't always sure of that. No, because after he makes this bold confession, we discover it was quite a journey for him to get there. In fact, the next thing he does is admit his doubt. In verses 2 to 3, he lets us know he nearly fell away from faith because he saw the wicked prosper. The neighbors around Asaph live prosperous, successful, and healthy lives. But year after year, from the time that they wake up in the morning to the time that they go to bed, these neighbors live as if God does not care or maybe that he doesn't even exist. So that we can get a feel about what Asaph is talking about, let's, let's bring it to our day and shape it and sharpen it a little bit. Many of our neighbors, whether at school or work or who live near our homes, for many reasons, do not live with God at the center of their lives. Maybe they have no thought of God at all, or even worse, they actively live in opposition to what God commands. And at school, they get better grades, they make the sports team, they get into better colleges, they are more attractive and more popular, they're maybe a little taller. Okay, they're a lot taller. And maybe the good fortune just continues in life for them. They get better jobs, get paid higher salaries, they marry well, have successful kids, travel around the world, and their health remains intact. And that hasn't been your experience exactly. As best as you know how, you live for God. You pray, you attend church, you give generously, you serve others, you think about God's kingdom And despite all your faithfulness, you look around and say, people who live without God, they seem to have it better than I do. And that's not fair. That's Asaph's hang-up. And I don't think he's the only one who has that hang-up either. Asaph is envious of unbelievers To borrow the words of the philosopher Rebecca D. Young, Asaph is bitter because others have it better. You see, unlike gluttony or lust 
or anger, envy has no satisfying aspect to it. To put it another way, to put it very concretely, unlike eating an extra burger or indulging in lustful thoughts or expressing your anger to get your way in a situation, there's nothing spiritually or physically satisfying about feeling envy. It is bitter to the last drop. Envy depletes the joy we have in our life with God. Years after Asaph, you can imagine how this psalm sounded when God's people were in the captivity in Babylon. Their lives were held captive to people who worshipped other gods. They worshipped the powers of this world, and the Babylonians had all the power and all the influence in society. That is a tough pill to swallow. So the first step Asaph takes in his journey from doubt to delight is he begins to question God from verses 4 all the way to 15. In effect, starting with verse 4, this is what he does. He says to God, God, how could you let these wicked people off the hook? Look at them. They're spared pain in their lives. They're physically fit. They're healthy, they're attractive. Unlike the rest of us, they're even spared the consequences for their actions. Either in the court of public opinion or in criminal court, they get off scot-free. And here's Asaph's conclusion in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. When you look around you in this world, does Asaph's conclusion seem all that wrong? Pick any country in the world, pick any time in history, and there's no shortage of evidence that Asaph is quite right. Many who get to the top cheat. They cheat on tests, they cheat on taxes, they cheat on their spouses, those who are in the wrong remain strong, and people who live with integrity seem to sink to the bottom. Well, if that's true, then the only natural thing to do would be to pursue our own personal health, pursue our wealth, pursue prosperity, whatever the cost, do whatever it takes, no matter who you hurt along the way. And certainly don't waste your time with, with your head in the clouds thinking about God because God doesn't see and God does not care if at all he even exists. And Asaph is saying, I'm really starting to believe that. Here's how he puts it in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. This life with God business is not a worthwhile investment. And that's not a fleeting thought for him. No, he says, for all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. These deep struggles are what greet him when he rolls out of bed. He's a worship leader. These could have been the very temptations that he was experiencing in between the verses he was singing. He's standing right on the edge 
of faith. Have you ever been there yourself? Have you too had this thought that this God business is just a shoddy investment? Well, what does Asaph do about it? Well, first we see what he doesn't do. You see, earlier in the psalm I said that this was about how God brings a mature Christian from a place of doubt to delight. And the reason I say that is not so much because Asaph is a, is a worship leader, but because of what he says in verse 15. Look down with me. He says this, If I had said, I will speak thus, meaning if I tell others about my envious heart, or that I feel that faith is futile, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He refrains from spilling his guts to other people. And all the introverts in the room say, Amen. Right? Keeps it to himself. Well, this is not a sermon on Romans 12, where we read, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In order to do that, you have to open up your life to those in the community that you're in with. You have to share your highs and lows. Don't worry, that's next month's sermon. We're going to get there. But the point we're making is simply this this morning, is that it takes maturity to know when and how and with whom you can share your faith struggles. One recent headline reads this, reads this way. After 40 years, Mega church pastor slams Christianity and quits. Now that's a sermon a congregation would never forget. But that's the public folly and injury to God's people that Asaph is wanting to avoid. And instead what he does is he takes his feelings of envy, he takes his doubt, and he takes his questions First and foremost, he takes him to God in private times of prayer. He has an understanding of his faith that is bigger than his personal feelings. So he doesn't spew his bitterness out on others. No matter how authentic it feels, it is never wise to wound the faith of another person. It's actually antagonism against God and against his people. So first, Asaph tells us what he doesn't do. Let's look now at what he does. Verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Given Asaph's faith crisis, You would think that it would be a miraculous event for his faith to recover, some amazing answer to prayer, some burning bush encounter with God, but that's not what happens. Instead, Asaph's jaundiced eye of envy gets cleared up when he goes to worship. Asaph goes to church. He goes to where God's word is heard and his people are gathered. And in that very ordinary event, God meets Asaph in a very extraordinary way. Asaph 
gets converted again. You see, in our way of thinking about conversion, we often reduce it down to a momentary experience where a person repents of their sins and believes in Christ for the first time, and then you're done with that. But conversion is not merely a one-time decision. It's a description of the entire pathway of the Christian life. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian and the second president of Princeton University, provided some pastoral counsel to a young adult who recently converted. Listen to what he says to this young woman named Deborah in a letter to her. He says, Deborah, do not stop seeking and praying for the very same things that we encourage unconverted people to pray for. Pray that you may receive sight, that you may know yourself, and that you may see the glory of God and Christ, that you may be raised from the dead, and that the love of Christ may shed abroad in your heart. Now, why should we do that? Why should a person already converted consider that? Here's what he says. Those who have most of these things still need to pray for them. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about himself. Because there is so much blindness and hardness, pride and death remaining, that they still need to have that work of God to bring a kind of new conversion and resurrection from the dead. And Asaph experiences this kind of conversion when he goes to the place where he hears God's promises proclaimed, where he receives the forgiveness of sins, and where he can sing his faith. God used church to change Asaph's heart. And he does the same for us. That is God's design for transformation. During periods of spiritual disenchantment, it's a temptation for all of us to fall away from the community of faith. But it's never a good idea to miss worshiping with God's people, whether it's here or somewhere else. Why? Because this is the place where God meets us. This is the place we hear God's promises afresh. God never misses a Sunday. No matter who is preaching or singing up front, you know, God has perfect church attendance. He's here every week. For a spiritually sick person to avoid the community where God restores people is both foolish and dangerous. And we can learn from Asaph's example here. He goes to the hospital to meet the God who can heal him. And the first thing that God does when Asaph shows for this appointment is is heal Asaph's short-sightedness. Verses 18 and 19, Asaph sees now, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are swept away utterly by terrors. You see, before, what was stuck in Asaph's mind was this photo, this picture in time. 
He was doom scrolling through all those beautiful Instagram snapshots of how those who are far from God are really living it up, living for themselves. But when he goes to church, God shows him the full video, so to speak. (coughs) Excuse me. And when he sees the full video, it's a completely different story. It looked like the wicked were really living life. But in truth, it was just a bad dream. Their full life is actually very empty. God shows Asaph the rest of the story, that the wicked will eventually wake up to a nightmare, that a life directed away from the life of God leads to nothing but dread and destruction. So Asaph gets his short-sightedness corrected by God, and God does that by giving him an eternal perspective, and he finally sees it. He finally sees it for himself. You see, no matter how far down the road you get, no matter how far and fast you travel, if it's in the wrong direction and leads in a dead end, it's no good. And this awakening of Asaph leads to an awareness about himself. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, he says to God. This is his confession before God. Asaph wanted the very same things that the lost pursued. And when he realizes that, he realizes, although he didn't have the same fruit bearing in his life, the root of bitterness was the same. As our spiritual vision matures, we often discover that the sins we detest in others is still very much alive within ourselves. And with that awareness... Asaph begins the difficult work of deep repentance. And with God's help, he removes the log from his own eye. And when he does, look at the consolation he receives on the other side of his conversion. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will receive me into glory. He started this psalm mired with questions. And now he is flooded with God's consolation. Like us. He had been plagued with a fear of missing out. FOMO. But now he sees the true delight that was available to him all along. I don't have an acronym for that. You see now, he sees God's presence was with him the whole time. God's right hand was keeping him steady. God's wisdom was guiding him all through his life's decisions. This sort of joy and assurance was better than everything else that the unbelievers had. Whatever temporary satisfaction or enjoyment in life they had, it can't compare to the glory that Asaph knows awaits him in the life to come. The Puritan Thomas Watson explains it like this, when we turn to God, 
we have more restored to us in Christ than what we have lost due to sin or for sacrificing in obedience to Christ. In other words, sin costs us something. To fall into envy starves our souls from what is truly good. It costs us something to sin. But on the other side of that, when we resist temptation and obey Christ, it also costs us something. A momentary experience of pleasure, money, time, favor with other people. And Asaph experiences both kinds of losses in this psalm. But when he repents of his sins, he, discover that, he discovers that God's grace is so rich, it not only removes the bitterness of sin, it provides an even greater delight in life than if he had gotten what the wicked had. It's even better. What Christ gives him in return is far better than what he has lost. The grace that God deposits in our lives is that rich and really that good. It's far greater than sin's debt and far greater than obedience cost. Psalm 63 puts it this way. God's loving kindness is better than life. And that's what Asaph begins to see again for the first time. But as soon as he starts to contemplate this, he runs into a bit of a problem. Because the gift of God's continual presence is too big for him to carry. The wealth of God's counsel is too much for him to use. It's bigger than what he can handle. You know those community postings that you see online that sound something like this? Beautiful, brand new, full living room set, absolutely free. Must be picked up and carried down 10 flights of steps. Only available between the hours of 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m. on Monday. It's free. It's generous. But it's too much for most people to handle. So that means, in the end, it's not yours because you can't hack it. But that is not how God offers His presence, nor His grace, or His joy. No, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God's grace is too much for us to carry. It is more than we could ever fully enjoy, but every last bit of it is still ours. And that's what Asaph starts to see. Is that what you see for yourself this morning? Is that what your heart most wants? Now about that free living room set, 10 flights of steps is a lot for me to carry, so if you are available tomorrow at 10 a.m., please see me. The truth is, for all that Asaph begins to grasp, he only sees a slice of what we see. 
we currently see better and more fully the future God has for us. The New Testament teaches that God dwells uniquely in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the temple of God that God raised on the third day. But in Revelation, we heard that those that join their lives to, to Jesus through faith, they become the very temple where God's glory will dwell forever, for all eternity. God's presence fills the church community and will never depart from it. In fact, he puts his name upon it forever. Asaph was just thrilled to be invited to the arena where God dwells. He didn't know, like we know, that he would become the arena itself. Join with God's people. He will be God's temple. And when Asaph begins to just think about the peace of the good news that he's received, this is how he responds. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Although Asaph saw a small measure of what we see God offers us in Jesus Christ, his inclination was to draw near to God and not anything else. When our faith is at a low point, it's very easy to draw near to TV, to scroll through our phones, to stew in bitterness, overindulge, or find other ways to numb our emotions. And instead, Asaph invites us to do like him, to draw near to God. So perhaps instead of streaming the next episode on Netflix, you can pick up a Bible and pray a psalm. You can pick up the phone and give and receive encouragement from other Christians. Pick up a book that deepens your love for God. Come forward after a service and receive prayer. Put a song on of praise that gives your faith life. Come to church and hear God's word. Even though there's a lack of motivation. You see, God can use all these means to bring peace to conflicted and wrestling souls, souls that are experiencing warfare. And none of these acts of worship are magic. They aren't cure-alls. But what they do is they better position yourself to deepen God's presence in your life until one day God will permanently make His home in you together with all believers throughout the ages. The psalm begins with Asaph, filled with doubts and questions. But those questions are turned to consolations when he goes into the sanctuary of God, when his sinful thinking is turned away and his eyes are open to the ways of God afresh. His conversion deepens. And it turns out that those people that he badly envied in the beginning, things don't end up so well for them. Their pleasures are short-lived, and they certainly don't compare to the wonderful gift of abundant life that God has already given us. And that's what Asaph sees. 
And that's why he can sing, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you, Lord. May God give us the grace this week to do the same. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, take from us everything that distances us from you and give us everything that brings us closer to you. Heal our sin-impaired vision and grant us new eyes to see the eternal hope we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us the grace to do what you command until we see you face to face and our hearts are made perfectly suited for your eternal dwelling. I pray that for each person here that you would do this in us and among us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.